Apparently, I, I, Anthony I Weiner. Well, oh God, oh. Anthony Weiner. Um, I should not comment on Anthony Weiner. I'm not a big fan, and I wasn't before he got in trouble, so I shouldn't comment on Anthony Weiner. This is the middle with Anthony Weiner, unplugged. And welcome to The Middle Unplugged, a break in the middle of the week when we reclaim the microphone from the far left and the far right and try to carve out some time for a less shrill and less extreme and generally less angry conversation somewhere from the middle. Welcome to episode one. A little word about our mission here. For those of you who are familiar with the radio show, The Middle, that I do on 77WABC Radio, I do it on Saturdays at 2 o'clock and then that it becomes a podcast. You might sound, some of this might sound familiar. I don't ask anyone to check their ideology at the door by any stretch of the imagination. I'm an ideological person. I'm a Democrat. I feel strongly about those principles. But I do have the notion that maybe the debate today is being driven too much from the far left and the far right, that the debate that we should be having, or at least the conversation we should be having, having are people that kind of come to the conversation the way most Americans, I believe, do, which is... I have my views, I have my philosophy, I have my experiences, and they inform the way I vote and the way I act politically. But I am not averse to the idea of having a conversation with people who either disagree with me or people from whom I can learn regardless of their ideological stripes. So our radio show is kind of a template for that, but here in the podcast form, we're going to have some twists, some things that are going to be possible here in a podcast that might not be possible on the radio or might just be easier in a podcast form. While we won't take calls, but we will open up the mailbag, for example, and we'll also read some tweets when they're interesting, appropriate, or funny, and we'll take a look at some Facebook posts. Like We'll have ways for people to have input here, and we'll even take a look at the mean ones. I actually kind of get a kick out of those from time to time. But we will have guests. We'll have interviews from time to time that will let issues breathe a little bit more. And we'll also be able to do some things experimentally the way podcasts lets us do it. So I'm really glad that you're along. And just to further clarify, you know, part of the where this came from is that I do a one-hour show each week where I kind of try to take a look on the radio of things that have gone on at the radio station that have kind of eluded notice or maybe taken too much of a one-hand clapping kind of phenomenon and try to bring a different perspective to it. A lot was going on during the middle of the week, and commonly people would say to me, how come you're not weighing in more on these issues? This is an opportunity to do it, and I'm really glad that you're along. So let's get to the middle of the news this week. First of all, as I pick up the newspapers this morning, Adidas has finally cut ties with Kanye West. It took them long enough to do it. Their share price dropped by 19 percent, almost 20 percent. There are still some people that are hanging on. The House GOP, Jim Jordan, still has on his Twitter page his affinity for Kanye West and links it with Donald Trump and Musk. But, you know, the interesting thing about Adidas is they had a particular level of sensitivity, or you would think that would have led them to cut ties over Kanye West's anti-Semitism much earlier. Adidas, in their history, provided apparel literally for Hitler Youth back in the day. You would think they would have responded quicker. And, you know, look, whatever you think of Kanye West as an artist, and a lot of people admire him as that, he has become the tip of the sword of a rising kind of acceptability of anti-Semitism. And he's now lost his agent. Contracts have lost his platform to some degree on Twitter and other places. But it just shows us that just because you're good at one thing or success at one thing doesn't necessarily mean 
that you are someone that we should be following. Just yesterday, Richie Sunak was sworn in as the third British prime minister in just a matter of months. It looked for a brief moment there that Boris Yeltsin, <laughs> that's funny, Boris Johnson would reemerge. By the time he got back from his Dominican Republic retreat, Richie Sunak, who came in second the last time when Liz Truss was elevated, that he wasn't even going to try. The Richie Sunak had enough signatures. Now his colleagues have elevated him. He has had a ceremonial shaking of the hand. It is important to note that Truss was basically thrown out for doing what politicians do all the time here in the United States of America, and that is propose and try to implement, or in our case, do implement, giant, giant tax cuts for the very well-to-do with the argument that it's good for everyone. Immediately when people had a chance to weigh in in terms of polls and when economists had a chance to weigh in, they realized that was a bad way to go. It reminds you again, and you can go back. I did a whole episode of this on the radio. The British system has a lot to say for it. It really does. You know, the idea that when a leader is no longer doing the popular things, not doing the things that the party wants him to do, they can just remove him. You wonder if Democrats would have thought about doing that, which Joe Biden may still think about, and whether or not Republicans would have thought about doing that after January 6th or after the first impeachment trial. Primary day is just 13 days away. And yes, it's not the first Tuesday in November that you might have thought you were taught in school. It is the first Tuesday following the first Monday. So this is as late as it will ever be. It's on the 8th this year. And... Hochul debated Lee Zeldin last night. I'm going to have a full breakdown of that on the Saturday show. We're also going to be talking to Curtis Sliwa about that on Left versus Right this weekend. But the final 10 days or so before the midterms, you know, there are red lights and green lights really flashing for both parties. The GOP, the Republicans, undoubtedly have a combination of what we call the fundamentals, which are the things that exist in the world in midterm elections that are good for Republicans. One, the out party always gains. I say always. They didn't gain in 2002 and didn't gain in 1998, but they usually gain substantially average about 25 to 30 seats in the out party, meaning the party that doesn't control the White House. It's particularly true when they don't control the legislature. And so that's good for the Republicans. High inflation, usually an indicator, the economy, usually an indicator, and the popularity of the president. We have a largely unpopular president. He's polling at about 53 positive, 50 negative or so this morning. All of these things are usually good for the Republicans. And especially when you consider that 71 percent of all Americans say that the country is on the wrong track. But a red light that's flashing for them is, you know, that momentum is changing very quickly and a very high turnout might actually in a weird way be hurting the Republicans in the following way. There's a lot of conversation within the party. You know, I talked about it on the weekend show. A lot of fundamentally in the Republican Party, many of their base believes that elections are not on the level, that you can't trust the count. And they've also been told that paper ballots are not trustworthy whenever they, unless they're at the day of. You know, they have a weird position on paper ballots. They don't want them to be mailed in, but they do think that that should be what you use when you go and vote. So this skepticism, I think, hurt Donald Trump in 2020 because I think a lot of people who might have been eligible for absentee ballots chose not to get them because they didn't trust it. So that might actually be something that Republicans should be concerned about. Also, traditionally, in this time in a midterm election, seeing the party up four, five, six, seven points in the generic ballot, which is when you just ask people, are you 
intend to vote for a Democrat or a Republican, they should be up by more than the one, one and a half that they are up right now. For Democrats, on the other hand, a lot of concern that they peak too soon. Choice is receding as an issue. The polling is getting much tighter. Polling in Pennsylvania has gotten much tighter. Polling in Nevada seems to have flipped. Now, Laxalt in Nevada seems to be leading. I'm going to have all of my predictions. Probably I'll wait another week since it may change some more, but some real concern. But the fact that there is such intense interest in this election, NBC recently did a poll and they let people put on a scale of zero to 10 their intense, their interest and likelihood to vote and participate this year. And this year, 70% gave it either a 9 or a 10, meaning the most intense interest. And that's even more than it was in 2018, the last midterm elections, when there was a pretty big wave for Democrats. And it goes to this notion of fundamentals. Fundamentally, Usually, midterm elections have a lower turnout, and a lower turnout generally has been assumed to favor Republicans. This year, however, if you buy the idea that we're going to have seven, like really high turnout midterm elections approaching presidential years, then that might be very good news for Democrats. It remains, remains to be seen. But now the question has turned to what will Republicans do if they win? And recently, Senator Blunt of Missouri, who I think is the whip of the Republicans in the Senate, was kind of asked that direct question. Let's listen to what he said. Democrat, they're going to vote Republican because of the economy. But what exactly is the Republican plan then? What should Republicans do differently? You know, it's one thing to blame the Democrats and say, yes, inflation is high, they're rising prices. It's another to say, and here's the solution. What is that solution for from Republicans? Oh, I, I think a lot of this that... Uh, really stabilize the economy. Uh, the American people aren't fooled by this, and they're going to hold the Democrats responsible, whether the Democrats want to want to like that or not. I think they are responsible. America, the American voters going to hold them responsible Election Day. I think there's no question Republicans will gain control of the House uh, and in a, a very narrow environment just as likely as not to gain control of the Senate. But they, we still won't have control of the administration, and bad regulatory policies and bad energy policies will continue to stoke what's now a fire of inflation that got way out of hand before Democrats. Uh... So there you go. If you heard a proposal in there, and he went on like that for another, I think, eight or nine seconds. We cut it off a little bit early, but it's basically that kind of, he went into – Senator Blunt went into punditry about basically who's going to win. But remember, the question was specifically asked by the reporter, and this was on CNN, asked, well, what are you going to do? And she particularly asked about inflation, which is a good starting point. And he basically didn't give any ideas. And that's usually the way it is, unfortunately, that when you're the out party, all you're trying to do is say, fire that guy. Now, the Democrats are trying to list all the different things that they did, but that brings us to the number of the day. We do numbers of the week on the weekend, number of the day here on the podcast, and that's 18. And that is the ideas in the Republican commitment to America that was issued by House leadership to say, here are the things, the specific things that we are going to do. Now, there wasn't one in the Senate, although they did try. Senator Scott from Florida, who runs their senatorial campaign committee, he put out his own list that was so wackadoo, things like 
not making Social Security a, an entitlement program anymore. It became such a target that immediately the senators, the Republican senators, ran away from it. And I get the political instinct to not put things on paper, but I've got to give the House Republicans credit because they do want people to imagine what it's going to be like. And so they have 18 specific ideas. Well, that's being generous. They have 18 bits of words And I want to go through with them some of you now because I do think it's important that as voters consider what they're going to do, you know, I'm a big believer in ideas. And I believe that having, you know, that this idea that Newt Gingrich kind of made popular back in the 1980s of like the contract with America to kind of really get people's minds around the idea of what a change in leadership would be. I think Kevin McCarthy and the leadership of the House Republicans, they wanted us to get it. But I want you to listen to some of these ideas because I don't know about you, but they are wafer-thin and often just rhetoric, particularly around some of the real vexing problems that we face. So the first one is fight inflation and lower cost of living. And the first bullet under that is curb wasteful government spending. Now, there is nothing stopping the Republicans from putting out a list today of what they think is that spending so we can actually look to see if we agree. But I'm not, you know, the idea that wasteful government spending And they say it was raising the price of groceries, gas, cars, and housing and growing our national debt. But they've also said that they plan on extending and making permanent the Trump tax cuts, which would obviously balloon the national debt and contribute even more to inflation because it would dump a whole bunch more money into the economy. So that's one idea. Next, increase take-home pay, create good-paying jobs, and bring stability to the economy through pro-growth tax and regulatory policies. So... I don't think I need to say that is not an idea uh, that you can turn to Congress and say, well, just increase take-home pay. The whole crux of this is how are you going to do it, and they don't answer it there. The next under the Make America Energy Independent Reduce Gas Prices, this one I like, maximize production of reliable, cleaner, American-made energy, cut the permitting time, process time in half to reduce reliance on foreign countries, preventing rolling blackouts and lowering the cost of gas and utilities. This one, I give them credit. At least there is a specific thing in there in as much as it's got a number, 50%, cut the permitting process time. I want to point out about this one, though, that there is nothing stopping the oil and gas industry from drilling and expanding production. There are thousands, 7,000 or so leases that have been granted by the federal government on federally owned land to explore and extract oil and gas that have not even been used. It's important that everyone understand that it is oil and oil companies who are choosing this environment because they are making billions and billions of dollars of profits around high gas prices. Make no mistake about it. It is not government regulators that want high prices. It is the companies in this. When we fall in love with the capitalist model, this is what you get. And recently, Joe Biden tried to cajole these oil companies to produce more. He's not saying produce less. He's saying produce more. It is not a regulatory problem anymore. It is a problem that these companies love getting these enormous, enormous profits. Next, strengthening the supply chain and independence on China. I love this one. Move supply chains away from China. Expand U.S. manufacturing and enhance U.S. economic competitiveness and cyber resiliency. Now, the cyber resiliency is kind of tacked on there. But Supply chains away from China, go ahead. I'm eager to hear how to do that. Is it the idea to do it how it was done under Donald Trump, which is you put tariffs on a bunch of things? Well, that raises prices, and we know that's in contradiction to the first point here. Saying 
move away from and expand U.S. manufacturing, that's all great. But until we go onto Amazon and go into Walmart and keep looking for the cheapest possible products, China is going to have those type of advantages over us in so many different things. I, for one, would say I am willing to pay a buck or two extra for a pair of jeans that is made in the United States. Unfortunately, you can't get that anymore. So that is worse than not specific. That one seems to be unsupported by any real economic underpinnings. Next block of proposals is a nation that's safe, secure our border, and combat illegal immigration. Now, this is one of the staple arguments that the Republicans have made. If you take us over, we are going to – if you let us take over the House and Senate, we will go out and secure our border. So listen to what they are saying. Fully fund effective border enforcement strategies, comma, infrastructure – and advanced technology to prevent illegal crossings and trafficking by cartels. Puzzling here, they don't mention building the wall. They say effective border enhancement strategies, they don't say what they are, infrastructure doesn't say what they are, and advanced technology doesn't say what, to prevent illegal border crossings and trafficking by cartels. I am surprised, frankly, that here it is, they have their moment, that they're putting out something about how they're going to deal with immigration And that's the platitude that you wind up getting. But there's one more bullet under this that is interesting because it does actually – it does sound a little more specific. And it is end catch and release loopholes, require legal status to get a job, and eliminate welfare incentives. So let's do those things one at a time. Catch and release loopholes, I'm not sure what they're referring to. You have two options when you have millions of people that are flooding our border. Well, you have more than two, but you have basically two big ones. That is, while they're waiting to have their cases adjudicated, and that is the people that have made asylum applications, and it's important to stress this, that the people that come here and present themselves and say, I am here and I am applying for asylum, and I am either at risk when I return of persecution or of physical harm or something like that, they can apply under the present law that was voted on by Democrats and Republicans, they can apply for asylum. While they are in process waiting for their assignment appointments, and I think it should be much shorter, and I think we should hire a bunch more administrative judges, a bunch more civilian, you know, even non-judges, just administrative officers to process these cases, and they don't propose that at all, you can either hold them and basically incarcerate them, or you can release them and give them paperwork on when they can come back for their hearing, and most people do come back for their hearing. I mean, this is their one option to be able to stay here legally and particularly when they come here with children. So under the Trump administration and and to some degree under the Obama administration, you would lock these people up. And that turned out to be untenable. Well, untenable from a logistical perspective and untenable because it just didn't seem to make a lot of sense, especially since a lot of these people came to this country with some support structure in place. So if they mean catch and release loopholes, meaning that anyone presently who crosses over and is awaiting processing for their paperwork that's catch and release, then I don't know exactly how they plan to do that. They don't say it in their plan. Require legal status to get a job. You already have that. If you're coming as an asylee, you've got to wait. You're not eligible to work until, and I don't know if that's such a great idea. I mean, I don't know what, you know, otherwise, the third thing, eliminate welfare incentives. There really aren't any way. You are not eligible for any form of public assistance except your children are eligible to be fed. Basically, that's the sum and substance of it. You're not eligible for unemployment benefits. You're not eligible. You know, the only benefits that are available is like if you're going to feed your kids, we're going to have an opportunity. And obviously here in New York City, 
we're going to provide a roof over your head. But there it is. That's the sum and substance of their whole immigration policy. Nothing about agricultural workers, nothing about setting up programs to deal with situations like we have in Venezuela where countries collapse. None of that. None about, even about Title 42, nothing about remain in Mexico, none about policies that sometimes I hear them talking about. None of that stuff is even mentioned. There are other things that are in here. As I said, there are 18 specific, but there are a lot like that. You know, defend America's support our troops, invest in an efficient, effective military, establish a select committee on China. That's not bad. That's a specific thing. They want to do that. I actually think that's, that's a fine idea. And exercise peace through strength with our allies to counter increasing global threats. Nothing about Ukraine. I mean, the problem is, it sounds to me like they're saying, vote for us and we'll give you a bumper sticker and we'll figure it out. I mean, there are a couple of things that I'd like in this plan. Like one is end special treatment for members of Congress by repealing proxy voting. That's not a special treatment for members of Congress. Who else has proxy voting? Only legislatures have proxy voting, and a lot of them do around the country. I agree. I like the idea of only in-person voting in the House of Representatives. I think that that should be the posture. I don't think any long COVID prevents that from happening. If it ever returns, you can return it. But I think proxy voting should be increased accountability in the election process through voter ID. I have no problem with some form of voter ID As I've said before, you have Democrats who believe that people who are entitled to vote, it's being made too hard for them. And Republicans are saying too many people who are not entitled to vote are showing up to vote. I think between those two pieces, I think we can come up with legislation that works. But hold Washington accountable, conduct rigorous oversight. I mean, come on. Preserve our constitutional freedom. Uphold free speech. I mean, these are just platitudes. This is not a real plan. So what is going to happen when the House take when? And I believe the Republicans will take over the House, not to let my predictions out of the bag. I think they will. I think it'll be narrow. It is going to be an utter mess. They are going to be incapable because they have this core of just wackadoo out there, ultra MAGA, the type, you know, people are, well, you know, Biden shouldn't have called insulted the entire Republican Party. No, I think he was referring, he said he was referring to this section of this anti-Semitic, you know, Holocaust denying, racist, anti-American, January 6th insurgent leading kind of element of the party, which is going to make it impossible for them to get anything done. Because remember, in these dynamics, the out party, meaning the Democrats, are going to only be a handful of votes away All they have to do is peel off a handful of votes. You're going to have people within the Republican Party who are going to make Kevin McCarthy, whoever it is, their life miserable every single day. They're not going to be able to get much done. And here's what's going to happen. And you don't have to scroll back far in your memory banks to remember when this happened after 2010, when the the Republicans stormed into Congress, upset about Obamacare, upset about— Oh, by the way, it doesn't say—I don't think it says—let me just take a look here. I don't think it says anything about repealing Obamacare. I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking. Nothing. They've given up on the repealing Obamacare because it's so popular. But what's going to wind up happening is, as it happened in 2010, the Republicans roll into town. They're all full of spit and vinegar, but they become, they start to realize all they know is what they're against and they don't know what they're for. And this reading, this commitment to America is kind of a demonstration of that. They don't have a good underpinning, articulated underpinning of what it is that they want to do. And so they flop around doing ideological stuff. And what winds up happening Obama runs against the do-nothing Congress, runs against a Congress who seems like they can't be trusted with the fate of the American people in their hands. And that's what Biden or whomever our nominee is going to do. They're going to say, you need an adult in the room. And it's bad for Trump, too. 
because Trump's going to announce he's going to run for president, presumably. And it's going to seem like the chaos that seemed like was going on that led to Biden being elected by a rather substantial margin. The same chaos is going to seem to be in play around the Republican Party. And the Democrats are going to come in and say, we're the adults. Let us be in charge. But like, that's why, you know, and I believe that to some degree here in New York, I mean, it's a little bit of a different example, but that's why I think that candidates, although no one really reads issue papers, and I know it just gives something for the opponents to attack, the reason you do it is twofold. One, to give a foundation, a scaffolding underneath your campaign. So you're constantly talking about things that matter to the American people. But also, it helps that if you get elected, you now have something that you can say, we're going to do item one, item two, item three, item four. And the contract with America, when Newt Gingrich did it, the difference then was they actually went and implemented, they tried to implement many of those things and they were just very unpopular. That's what they found out. Or they were harder than they thought. The Republicans this time are coming in entirely with a foundation of what they're against, and that's going to be problematic for them. So that's the number of the week is 18. Those are some of the ideas. We're going to go to a break, and after we go to the break, we're going to come back. We're going to dip into the mailbag and answer a listener question right after this. Okay, so welcome back to The Middle Unplugged. I'm Anthony Weiner. I told you we're going to do some things a little bit differently on the podcast here, and one of them is we're going to go to the mailbag. Sometimes it's going to be emails that come in, and I encourage you to write me. I am at Weiner, W-A-B-C, at gmail.com, Weiner, W-A-B-C, at gmail.com. Sometimes it's things that people have asked or said on Twitter. I'm at Rep Weiner, R-E-P-W-E-I-N-E-R. And also, I have a Facebook page. I think it's Anthony D. Wiener is the Facebook page for my – you know what we need? We need like a show page. Maybe that's something I'll, I'll ask my producer, Michael, how we set that up, like a show page or something. You can always – I think also we should probably set up a link that will be in the show notes here on where you can send in a question. But the first question comes in this week from uh, Peter McArdle. Peter writes in and says, why didn't you mention that the court ruled Stacey Abrams was wrong? And this is a question responding to a show I did recently where I took a look at election deniers and I took a look at skepticism that exists that elections are going to get it right. And I divided it into kind of three things. You know, two are the ones I mentioned earlier, which is many Republicans poll show or skeptical that they think that people who are not eligible to vote are voting. Undocumented people, people are voting five and six and ten times, ballot harvesting, stuff like that. And on the other side are many Democrats who are skeptical of the election because they believe that many people who are entitled to vote, that we're making it too difficult to. They're being prevented from voting. And then there was this third category that I tried to debunk the best I could of election deniers who believe that somehow the election was stolen, that there was some conspiracy to do it, that there was voting that was stuffing the ballots and folded ballots. We even got a call last week, oh, the absentee ballots should not be folded and they were folded. And I separated those out and talked about the dozens of lawsuits that were brought contesting that the results were correct, that were thrown out or not even supported at an evidentiary hearing, 115 different things, everyone thrown out by Republican judges. Then the audits that I pointed out that had been done in states like Arizona and Wisconsin and Michigan, all by Republican legislatures that not only found that there was not fraud, but found out that the results were either accurate or accurate within a couple of hundred votes, nothing that would have overturned the election. 
And one of the things that I took on was this notion that I've heard said, and Ted Cruz said it this week, and I hear it from time to time, where, oh, Stacey Abrams didn't concede. Hillary Clinton says that she thinks that Trump is an illegitimate president. Al Gore, you know, Democrats say that the Supreme Court appointed Al Gore president, not the electorate. And I try to make this distinction, and I will make it again for Peter, and I will also then acknowledge a point that he makes implicit in his question. His question was, why didn't you mention that the court ruled that Stacey Abrams was wrong? That is exactly the point. Stacey Abrams said in her remarks that I don't use the word concession because it means that everything is okay and I think everything was on the level. It's not. But I acknowledge that the final word goes to the courts. I acknowledge that the way you decide whether something's on the level or not is to have it go to the courts. I acknowledge that and I acknowledge that Kemp beat me. Okay? I mean, she was making the point that the allegations that I have made that polling places were moved, that it was made hard for people who are supposed to be voting, intentionally made hard, because remember, she was running against the Secretary of State at the time, was intentionally made it harder for people who are legally allowed to vote to vote. And I was making the distinction same way with Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton did concede the election, but that doesn't mean that she can't be pissed off about the outcome and say we need to change our laws. No one said, no one stood up and stormed the Capitol about George W. Bush having the election, the recount stopped in Florida. There is a distinction. The distinction is that if we say, let's say there are 60 court cases, 144 counts in the Stacey Abrams case. Let's say there were 60 court cases, 144 counts in Bush v. Gore. Let's say there were 60 cases, 144 court cases in Hillary Clinton's election against Donald Trump. Once they're resolved, we move on. We're not happy about it. We might want to change the law. We might want to argue about it. We might want to scream to the heavens. But we move on. We don't try to undermine the very democracy that we have. Fast forward to 2020. And we said the court cases are done. The final word has been said. We say we are going to threaten to kill the person that announces the results at the Congress on January 6th. We're going to threaten to kill him. We are going to, by force, we are going to charge the Capitol, and we are going to continue to this day say that no, stuff that didn't happen did happen. Now, remember, that's another important thing, and this goes to the answer I would have to Mr. McArdle's question. The facts in the case, to a large extent in Bush v. Gore, in Stacey Abrams' suits against Georgia, and Hillary allegations about Russian interference, are really not in dispute. They're not. The polling places were moved. In Bush v. Gore, the recount was stopped. In, in Hillary Clinton's case, the Russians did try to hack the 2016 elections based on evidence, based on information, and based on a consensus of Republican. Let me say it again. Donald Trump, let me say it again. Analysts who look, took a look at this. The only issue is whether or not the court said that is enough or we have any recourse when that kind of things happens. We do have recourse. We go back after the fact to try to fix it. But no one has suggested, oh, we undo the election or we throw out the election results and start again. And the facts in 2020 are unsupported. They're made up. Fake trucks of truckers with fake ballots in the back. Things that, you know, software that switch votes from one thing to another you know, there's all this paper under audits have been done, everything else. That's the main difference. So so when he says, why don't you mention the court rule against Stacey Abrams was wrong? I left that out. If I left that out, that's 
right. Stacey Abrams lost in the courts. And we've lost in the Supreme Court as they've diminished the Voting Rights Act over and over again. And we lost in Bush v. Gore. And unfortunately, we lost when the FBI got involved with my laptop and made a whole announcement about it, but didn't say a word about the fact that they were investigating Donald Trump for collusion and ties to the Russians. So yes, the FBI put their finger on the scale for Donald Trump, you know, in that case. But the difference is, and this is what Ted Cruz and what others and what Mr. McArdle probably doesn't understand. The difference is, is as a result of that, what? Do you charge the Capitol? Do you say that it was stolen? Do you make up stories about fake ballots and fake machines? No, you try to change the law. You try to change the lawmakers. Or in some cases, you say you try to pack the court with different people. Or you try to appoint Supreme Court justices who believe in the Voting Rights Act. That's what you do. That's American. That's patriotism. What's not patriotic is saying is making up lies about the results or being the loser and saying that you won when you know you didn't. That's unpatriotic because that undermines the entire system. So that's mailbag for today. As I said, if you'd like to have you like throw a question to me either about the Saturday show, the middle or the middle unplugged, you can reach out in any number of ways. And once again, it's wienerwabc at gmail.com at rep wiener on Twitter. And Anthony D. Wiener, I think, on Facebook. I am not a big social media guy. I'm trying to dip my toes back in it. But as you know, it's gotten me in trouble in the past. So thank you so much. That is the end of The Middle Unplugged for this week. Thank you so much for being here for Episode 1. We hope to be doing this every Wednesday, having it drop in the middle of the week. Get it? Wednesday is the middle of the hump day. And I encourage you to do a couple of things. One, spread the word about this if you like it. Subscribe and listen every week. We really do appreciate all the support. And also, you can always find links to this and other podcasts at the Red Apple Podcast Network, which has not only me, but other personalities on WN77 WABC, has some interesting podcasts that are freestanding podcasts. It also has podcast versions of my show, The Middle, which is on every Saturday from 2 to 3, and the show I do immediately after, Left versus Right with me and Curtis Lewa. Thank you so much for joining me on the first issue of The Middle Unplugged. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.